0: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16-33. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witnesses before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious, How you are going to speak or what are you to say? For you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher not a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Bilzebel, how much they more they will milligan those to his household. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will. Be noted, be relieved, or hidden, will not known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what I what you hear whispered, proclaimed on the housetop. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear fear him who can destroy both soul, and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledged me before men I also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Will you pray with me before we jump into this morning's text? Father, we come to you. Uh, Those are weighty words from your son. carry a lot with them. Lord, I pray that your spirit, we know he is for us in Christ, I pray that your spirit will give us uh, ears to receive what's being said, that where we need to be challenged we will receive the challenge. Father, I pray that you give us enough confidence in the grace you've shown to us and in the love you've demonstrated to us that we can receive the hard words, but we also might claim to the great and precious promises that you make to us in this passage. So as we come, that's my big, one big prayer that we would leave here as a people knowing more and more of the precious promises that you've made to us and that we would live in light of those promises. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, uh, my dad was, interestingly enough, my dad was a banjo fanatic. Um, And it's interesting because I didn't grow up in eastern Kentucky like you would imagine. Uh, My dad actually grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which isn't really a bastion for bluegrass music. But he saw, he watched the Bonnie and Clyde movie uh, way back when, and he heard Earl Scruggs play Foggy Mountain Breakdown in that movie, and that one moment just captured him. And from then on, he was determined to learn how to play the banjo, and so he went to buy one, but banjos are actually very expensive instruments, didn't have the money, and so he decided that he'd figure out how to make one. And my dad was actually a very gifted craftsman, and so he ended up becoming uh, a luthier and he started making banjos for some of the most famous banjo players in the world, which I guess is all relative, but... Um, and so I'd say banjo has been a part of my life, like, since I was born. We, growing up, we, when I was younger, we had one TV in the house and we would regularly watch uh, reruns of Hee Haw. Anyone familiar with Hee Haw? If you don't know what Hee Haw is, it's imagine Saturday Night Live, Sesame Street, and the Grand Old Opry had a child. Um, It's kind of what the show is. And so we would watch those regularly during the Hee Haw. There would oftentimes be advertisements. I don't know if you guys remember infomercials with the blue background and 1-800. Well, there was this commercial for country classics it was a two disc country classics compact disc set it was thirty dollars plus fifteen dollars shipping and handling and it's the only time my dad would have ever bought anything off of an infomercial but he bought it and those two cds became the soundtrack anytime we went on road trips for my entire childhood no every single song every word to every song and it's i mean there's great johnny cash patsy klein Hank Snow, Statler Brothers, and so I was raised with bluegrass and country music in my bones. But I was also raised in the north, and where I grew up uh, in, you know, elementary school, middle school, country music wasn't something that really elevated your street cred with your friends. Like it wasn't something that was very popular. So for a long time, I tried to resist resist it and, you know, talk about how horrible it all was, but eventually the twang won me over, and uh, by the end of middle school, I started listening to all kinds of country radio, and there were two stations in particular where I grew up. There was B105, which was the classic country station. That's where you'd go to listen to George Strait, the king, and then there was Y96.5, and Y96.5 That had like the young guns like Kenny Chesney before he turned into a knockoff of Jimmy Buffett and guys like him. And so I would listen, alternate between those two stations. Well, one day, uh, I think it was in eighth grade, my mom came home from work and she said, I got you some presents. And she hands me this bag. And in the bag is a B105 t-shirt with a little B on it. And then a Y96.5 t-shirt. And she was like, I know how much you love these... Radio stations, I thought she would love these shirts, and I'll never forget in that moment not knowing what to say because I didn't know how to tell my mom that I'd rather go to school shirtless than wear one of those shirts. And it's not because I didn't, didn't like the stations, but it's because I didn't want to face the ridicule or backlash. And so I took them, I hung them in my closet. And over the years, they made their way further and further into the back of the closet until eventually they went to goodwill, never having worn them out of the house once in my entire life. Now, my mom has started listening to my sermons online. And this is the first she's hearing of any of this. So I love you, mom. Sorry about that. It is funny, though, what fear makes us do. Like, the fear of ridicule made me hide something that was actually a huge part of my life. Fear can cut us off from people, leads us to hide from from other people, leads to isolation in extreme forms, isn't it? Fear that leads people to become hermits and hoarders and preppers. Isn't it fear that keeps us from saying really hard but important things? I mean, how many of our relationships are stuck because we don't, we don't want to say the hard thing? We're afraid to say the hard thing when the hard thing might be the very thing that takes our relationship forward. I'm convinced fear is one of the most powerful first forces at work in our lives. And it shows up in different people's lives in different ways. And so two questions I want to start with for you. How does fear show up in your life? How does fear show up in your life? Does it make you aggressive and angry sometimes? It's the way it works. Does it lead you to retreat and withdraw and hide, isolate? How does fear show up in your life? And then the second question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do in life if you weren't afraid? I want you to remember and think about that. The text we're looking at today is a text about fear and courage. And to give you just a little bit of a context, this is a turning point in Matthew's gospel where Jesus, for the first time, he's he's calling his disciples up from the farm leagues and he's sending them out on mission to go and accomplish his mission alongside of him. And all of chapter 10, basically, what Jesus is doing is he's giving one long sermon to his disciples to prepare them before they go out. This is their commissioning sermon as they're going out into the world on mission. And while Jesus gives them a few instructions and a bit of strategy at the beginning of the sermon, he spends most of his time in the sermon, the overwhelming majority of his time, preparing his disciples for just how hard it's going to be the opposition they're going to face, preparing them for the temptation to fear that they're all going to experience. So before Jesus sends the disciples out, he gives them this sermon about fear and courage, and it it tells us something, and it tells us this, that last week we talked about how the catalyst for mission is compassion. Well, this teaches us that the great necessity of mission, the thing that sustains us in mission, It's courage. And if we're going to walk in faithfulness to the calling that Jesus has put on our lives, we've got to be a people marked by courage. And when I say courage, what I mean is the ability to move forward in the face of fear or to persevere in the midst of adversity. And so very simply this morning, we're going to talk about courage, the courage that Jesus offers to us. And we're going to talk about, number one, why we need it, and then two, where we find it. Um, very simple outline, but but a very very critical thing in the Christian life. Starting with why we need it, and we've we've kind of already hit it. But I want you to imagine being one of the disciples. You've been following Jesus for a while now. Everywhere you go, crowds of people are flocking to Jesus, and you're watching Jesus do amazing things, like heal the sick, cast out demon demons, raise people from the dead, and Every time Jesus does one of these amazing works, more and more people come and are drawn to him. And then you get to this point in chapter nine, chapter 10, where Jesus says, all right, the things that I've been doing, now you're going to do. I'm commanding you and empowering you and equipping you. You are now going to go out and heal sick people, cast out demons. You're going to raise the dead. Imagine what that must have been like. Like how exhilarating that moment must have been when Jesus said, all right, your turn. And you have to remember, up to this point, they haven't, Jesus hasn't faced hardly any opposition except for in the Gadarenes, and that place was weird anywhere. Anyway, everywhere else that they went was really like, you'd heal one, three more people would come. Imagine being one of the disciples and thinking about Jesus calling you to this. Do you start thinking about the people? Like people you know, I can't wait to go and help them. They've been dealing with this for years and I can go heal them. Or cities that you care about. I'm going to go to Tyre. I'm going to go to Sidon. I can't wait to go bring the good news there. There had to be such an exhilarating moment. And then Jesus tells you, now before you go, I've got a few things that I want to tell you. And so you get your pocket sized moleskin, your pen out, and you're like, all right. He's like, here are some instructions. Number one, Don't turn this into a money-making operation. Just go do good, and don't try to get rich off of it, okay? Number two, he says, travel light. Don't bring any props with you or anything else. Like, all you need is the message. The message is compelling enough. All right, you write that down. Number three, he tells you, whatever town you go to, just stay in one house. Don't bounce around between houses, but just find some people and build relationships with them. All right, and so you're writing down all of these instructions, and then the next thing that Jesus says is, oh, by the way, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. you imagine? You're like taking notes. Oh, that just took a turn. People better receive us. And then Jesus continues. And he says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And from that point on, he paints a very sobering picture about the opposition his disciples are going to face. In verses 17 and 18, he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So he says, listen, the powers that be aren't going to like the message you're proclaiming. The religious and civil authorities, they're going to come after you. And then he goes on down in verse 21. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. So it's not just the powers that be. It's not just the authorities. It's your own families. Some of your families are gonna disown you. Some of your families are gonna betray you to the authorities. And then in case he hasn't been clear enough up to this point in verse 22, he says, you will be hated by all. For my name's sake. It doesn't mean that every single person is going to hate the disciples. He just means every kind of person is going to hate the disciples. Just imagine being the disciples in that moment. You're going to heal the sick and raise the dead and do all kinds of wondrous miracles and all the crowds that you've seen. You're going to have those kind of crowds, but don't be naive, he says. It's going to be really, really hard you're going to face all kinds of opposition. And it's important to remember that this is the very beginning of the Jesus movement, the very beginning of the church. And so it's not like they're going to towns and to people who've been burned by Christians before, and it's like, I hate Christians because they always do this. No one even knows who Jesus is at this point. It's not the baggage that's going to create the opposition. It's the message itself. People are going to oppose the disciples because they are bringing an incredible message, but also an incredibly polarizing message. People are gonna oppose the disciples of Jesus because Jesus was and is the most polarizing figure in the history of the world. You know, when I was young, I've shared this before, but when I was young, one of the most naive things I believed when I was young in my faith, about 16, is I thought, if only people understood, the gospel the way I do. If only people understood the Bible, like if we could just get the news out there, then everyone would be a Christian. I mean, I think that's part of the reason I felt called into ministry is I wanted to be as clear as possible about what Christianity was, and it wasn't because I was convinced if we could just get the message clear, concise, and presented in a compelling way, everyone would come to faith. But Jesus makes it clear that that is not the case, that the message always goes forward with opposition because Jesus Christ was and is the most polarizing figure in the history of the world there are a number of reasons for this I'll give you two Jesus is polarizing because he makes enormous claims So in John 8, he's in this argument with the Pharisees, and they're talking about who's truly connected to Abraham, you know, who lived thousands of years beforehand. And they're going back and forth, and finally Jesus says, you know what before Abraham was? I am. And in saying that, what Jesus is saying is, I existed before Abraham. But then when he says I am, he's taking away that God referred to himself, and he's, he's using it to refer to himself. All right, that's an enormous claim. If you got an argument with someone right now, who's older, you know, you and you're like before Abraham Lincoln was I am. We would think what are you talking about? You're saying you've been alive for, you know, 150 200 years? Jesus is saying for 1000 years. He makes these enormous claims. Not just enormous claims, Jesus makes exclusive claims. Jesus doesn't, never says, I am a way to God. He always says, I am the way to God. John 14, he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't come saying, listen, I'm another way up the mountain to the divine. He said, I'm the only way. I'm the door, I'm the gate. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so you take these enormous claims and these exclusive claims, And what they do is they push people to the extremes because you can't yawn at them. You can't say, oh, that's interesting or that's... You have to do something. When you have a man who claimed to be God, who's healing people and raising them from the dead, and he's also claiming that the only way to God is through him, you either bow down and worship him and reorient your entire life around him, or you reject him as a crazy person. Those are the options. There's no like, well, he's kind of cool. I mean, I know that he claims that he's God, but other than that, he's great. There's none of that. He pushes you to the extremes. And Jesus knows that as his disciples carry the message forward, they are going to start polarizing people. Some are gonna be attracted and some are going to be repelled. And he wants them to be prepared. See, last week we talked at length about the catalyst for Jesus mission being compassion, that what drives us out into the world is a love for people. And Jesus wants us to share in that compassion, but he doesn't want our compassion to make us naive. He doesn't want compassion to make the disciples naive. And that's why he says, if you're going to carry the gospel into the world, you need to know not everyone's going to receive it with open arms. Some people will raise up arms against you. You're going to face opposition, rejection, and even persecution. And I don't want you to be naive. And I don't want you to shrink back from what I've called you to do when that stuff arises. As I've been sitting with this text for the last couple of weeks, what I find so interesting is that Jesus, he gives this one long sermon to his disciples to send them out. And he spends the majority of the time preparing them for the opposition they're going to face. He spends very little time giving them details and strategies for mission. And I think that's because the mission is actually pretty simple. The mission is God has come among us. There is forgiveness being offered for sins. And even more than that, God, he is at work in the world, healing the world. Healing us from our sin and healing this world from what we've done to the place. And the message is like, follow him. That's it. Submit your life to him. Where things get challenging is how to navigate those who are to reject and oppose this incredible news. And so Jesus, he he gives an entire sermon saying, you're gonna face, he doesn't say you're not gonna face opposite, he says you're going to face it. But I don't want you to be afraid. All right, this tells us something. One, it tells us that Opposition isn't like a byproduct of the mission that occurs every once in a while. It's actually baked into the mission. That facing opposition and rejection, it's not just something that happens every once in a while, but it's actually a very part of the mission. It's learning how to persevere in the midst of that. It also tells us that if we're going to be a people who walk faithfully and embracing the call God's put on our life, we have to know what to do with our fears, and so often our objections to telling others about Jesus or stepping out in faith in different areas of our life will say things like well I'm not good at talking about my faith I don't know if I can answer everyone's questions but I think most of the time what we're really saying in those moments at least what I'm I'm saying in those moments when I offer those excuses is I'm afraid what if I bring up Jesus and it makes this relationship really awkward What if it offends them? What if I bring it up and then they they push back and say something and I don't know how to answer it? Afraid of making things awkward, I'm afraid of rejection. I know many of you here are, some of you here, you fear retaliation at work. If if it becomes clear that you're a Bible-believing Christian in your job, you will face backlash. You might put a ceiling over you. And this text reveals that those kinds of fears, they're not unfounded. Jesus tells us straight up, we're going to face opposition. And so what this means is our greatest need is not to figure out how to avoid opposition. Our greatest need is to know how to remain faithful in the midst of it. To put it another way, faithfulness is not trying to figure out how we can the needle and avoid any kind of hardship or pushback for our faith. Faithfulness is walking faithfully through hardship and doing it with wisdom, doing it with a discernment. Jesus says, be you know, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So some Christians, you know, are innocent as serpents and wise as doves. And uh, so they face opposition because of that, because who they are. But Jesus says, even if you do it the absolute best, you're going to face it. That's why we need courage. How do we walk into those fears? And how do we walk into those fears as sheep? Do you notice that? Jesus said, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. And I think of all of the animals Jesus could have used to represent the disciples. Couldn't have picked lions or tigers eagles soaring. No, sheep. We talked about sheep last week. They're defenseless animals and they're not the smartest of animals. They're highly vulnerable. They're not good for much of anything except for making wool. That's what they're good for. And Jesus says, you're going out and you are defenseless and I'm sending you in the midst of a bunch of predators. And I think what Jesus is trying to say here is, when you face opposition, you can't respond the way the world responds to opposition. You can't respond to hostility with hostility. You can't respond to violence with violence. I've called you to a different way. When someone strikes you on one cheek, you offer them the other, you don't strike them back. And so not only are we being sent out into a world, highly vulnerable, but we also can't respond the way the world responds. It's no wonder that I think so many of us were hesitant to ever step out in boldness with our faith. Because it's challenging. That's why we need courage. Why we need it, where do we find it? Well, courage, remember, it's the ability to move forward in the face of fear, to persevere in the midst of great adversity. Where does courage come from? Where does it come from? Is it something innate in some of us and not in others of us? Is courage something you're born with? Like they're a really courageous person. I'm not, I didn't get those genes. In our culture courage, you know, we're told that courage comes by looking within yourself and believing in yourself. Where does courage come from in this text? I'll give you a hint. Jesus doesn't once say, I chose you because you're the bravest. And not once does Jesus say, look within yourself and believe in yourself because I believe in you. What Jesus says over and over again is believe in me and believe in my promises. See, courage, it's not something we drum up within ourselves. It's something from outside ourselves that we receive and we cling to and then we respond to. Our courage as Christians, it doesn't flow from our charisma or our competencies. It flows from God's promises. And if we're going to be a people who walk in courage into the world, we've got to know the promises and we've got to cling to the promises. The promises have to be second nature to us and that's why Jesus it's a hard sermon and all of it is just the translation i think jesus is saying really really hard things but i don't want you to miss that throughout this sermon jesus makes a number of incredible promises and it's almost like jesus is saying it's going to be it's going to be so much worse than you think but for instance verse 19 he promises the spirit's guidance he said yeah some of you're going to get arrested you're going to be brought before courts and Try. Don't even worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to give you my spirit. He'll give you the words. (laughs) How amazing is that? But also how terrifying is that as a disciple? All right, so I'm going to trust you that when I'm standing before the judge, you're just going to give me something to say. Because a lot of times when I'm put on the spot, I don't know what to say. And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't even think about it. Don't even start, you know, in your mind, start preparing your defense. Just walk in faith and trust that I'll give you my spirit. He promises deliverance. It's a confusing verse, and I'm not going to get into all of the details. But in verse 23, he says, you won't go through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What Jesus is saying there, in essence, is that he is faithful to judge his enemies and deliver his people. And he will at various times show up to deliver his people and to bring judgment on his enemies. Verse 26, Jesus says, there's the promise of vindication. He says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of people who oppose you for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What he's saying here is you're going to go in courage and you're going to be misunderstood at times. But in the end, the truth will come out. In the end, nothing that's hidden will not be uncovered. So he makes a number of promises. I want to close by looking at two of them. Two promises that if we know them, and if we grab hold of them, they will embolden us and fill us with courage. And I will tell you, at first reading, they don't necessarily sound like wonderful promises, but they are. You just gotta stick with me. Verse 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, there's there's a promise here. Does that sound like a promise to anyone? <laughs> you read it. Now Jesus, he's trying to do something here. And at first it doesn't seem very encouraging. But he's trying to say, listen, we're all going to, what he's doing is he's saying we all live in fear of something. He says you can live in fear of people, but what's the worst thing that another human being can do to you? They can kill you. And Jesus, the Bible makes it clear again and again, we live forever, even after our bodies die, which means someone killing us, while it's not good, like it's not enjoyable, being martyred for your faith is not the worst thing that could happen to you. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you would be cut off from the source of all life and love for eternity that your soul would be separated from the God who created you forever. And so Jesus is saying, if we're gonna live in fear of something, don't live in fear of people who can kill you because if they kill you, then you get to go be with me and it'll be amazing. If you're gonna live in fear, fear God because God has the power not just to kill you, he also has the power to cut you off from his presence forever. Now, these are strong words, but Jesus is not saying this to induce more fear in us. Like, oh, great, now I'm afraid of them and I'm afraid of him. Awesome. Thanks, Jesus. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to give us a better way of seeing reality, a true way of understanding and seeing reality and living. And we know this because right after he says this, right after he says, fear him who can kill the body and throw the soul in hell, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. See, what Jesus is saying here is like, if you want to be afraid, I'll tell you who to be afraid of, God. But you don't need to be afraid of him. You know why? Because he even cares about the sparrows. And if he cares about the sparrows, how much more is he going to care for you? I have five kids, I love my kids, I love being a dad, but I have never sat and counted the number of hairs on their heads. Like I don't love them that much. And Jesus is saying, your father? (laughs) So he cares about the birds, he cares about you so much that he knows the number of hairs on your head. And we can run to verses like these you know, when we're struggling and when life's hard, when we're confused. We can run to these strictly as comfort when we're discouraged. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't miss the context here. The context here is mission. Jesus is saying, as you go out, you're going to face all kinds of opposition. Some of you are going to be persecuted. Never forget, your father knows you. He cares for you and nothing and i mean nothing will touch you that hasn't first passed through his hands cling to that promise and what boldness might flow from it second one the very next verse everyone who acknowledges me before men i will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, it doesn't sound like a very encouraging verse, but there is, there is a warning here, but there's also a great promise. The warning is, if you deny me, if you deny knowing me, then I'm going to deny knowing you. And that's a very real warning. And I I don't want to water the warning down, but I do want to nuance the warning and say, let's not forget that of the original 12 who received these words from Jesus, one of them was Peter. The same Peter who denied Jesus in his darkest hour three separate times. And so Jesus here, he's not saying, your, your temporary lapses in faith, your temporary moments of unbelief, when cowardice rises up or when your flesh fails you, he's not saying if you ever deny me, then you're out. What he's saying though, is if, if you resolve to keep your connection with me permanently under wraps, if you refuse to ever acknowledge me before others, then I will refuse to acknowledge you before the Father. If you're, you're kind of banking like, well, deep down, I think Jesus will save me, but I'm never going to talk about it. Jesus is saying it doesn't work like that. And these are really hard words. And I'm the mailman. I'm just reading you what it says. If you deny knowing me, I will deny knowing you. That's the warning. But there's also an amazing promise here. And the amazing promise is that if we acknowledge Jesus before men, if we talk about him and identify with him before men, Jesus says, I'm going to acknowledge and identify with you before my father. Even though your life is nowhere near what I created it to be, even though you sin in so many different ways, even though you have fallen so short of the glory of God, If you acknowledge me, Jesus says, my promise is I will acknowledge you. If you identify with me, I will identify with you. And one of the recurring themes in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ lives to intercede for his people. He doesn't say if you went a bunch of converts. He doesn't say if you have an amazing ministry. He just says, if you identify with me. See, Jesus... The encouragement. And it's, it's sweet. It's a sweet encouragement. And it's so comforting. But there is a hard shell that you got to break through to get to it. What Jesus is saying in this sermon is he's saying, hardships are going to be real. Opposition is going to be real. But never forget that the worst thing that could happen to you, it's not that you would die. The worst thing that could happen to you is that your fear of opposition and rejection would keep you from speaking up and sharing about the greatest news this world has ever known. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you would be given this message that God has not given up on this world or on us, and that he is committed to bringing healing and wholeness, that you would be given this message and then you would sit on it or file it away because you didn't want to make things awkward. That's the greatest tragedy. I want to go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What would you do if you weren't afraid? I had a friend of mine ask his church this question. You know, a few people said like I would go skydiving or bungee jumping. A couple of people said I would have the hard conversation that I've put off for way too long. But the overwhelming majority of the people in his church said I would tell someone I love about Jesus. I would call up my dad and say, I want to talk to you about my faith. I would call up my son and say, I want to talk to you about my faith. I'd call up my sister. I'd speak to someone, talk to someone at work or a coworker. The overwhelming majority of people said that they would they would go and share their faith with someone. and And I think this is where it gets really difficult. And I mentioned last week, the struggle I have when I preach about evangelism. The challenge is, If you know Jesus, then you want other people to know him. I've yet to meet a Christian who's like, no, I don't want other people to know. You do, but there's just, it's hard. How do we bridge this gap? And how do we deal with the awkwardness and the opposition? And Jesus tells us, you just walk in faithfulness and then trust me. I've got you. Nothing's going to happen that I haven't signed off on. And so I wonder, I wonder for you what a step forward might look like. Remember, most forms of growth, as human beings and as Christians, we like to think that it's just this upward incline, you know, uninterrupted, where everything gets better. Normally, it's two steps forward, one step back. But I wonder what two steps forward might look like for you. Maybe, maybe it's identifying as a Christian for the first time with coworkers or your family. Maybe it's asking someone to pray for them and then actually praying. Maybe it's inviting people to church or your community group. For others of you, it might mean having a very intentional conversation with a friend, with a coworker, with a parent, or even with a child. And I'd encourage you, we get to see an awesome thing that we're going to, we have two baptisms in this service. We had a baptism at the nine, two baptisms in this service. And they're baptisms of younger folks whose parents have walked faithfully and entrusted the faith to the next generation. And I think some of that comes through just being with your kids. But I also, I don't want us to think that just because we bring our kids to church and maybe you, send your kids to a Christian school, that they're going to end up being Christian, it might be a very, very beneficial thing for you to sit down and have a very intentional conversation with one of your children and say, I'm a Christian and let me tell you why. And not just assume that they'll pick it up. I don't know what it is for you. I do know that Jesus, he wants us to move forward with boldness and without fear, trusting in his promises. And so what would you do if you weren't afraid? And then go and do that as we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ, he says hard things to us, but he's done even harder things on our behalf. And on the night before his crucifixion, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant that's been poured out for you do this in remembrance of me. And so as believers, it's when we come to this table that we remember I am loved by God, not by what I do, but because of what he's done for me. It's when we come to this table that we remember Jesus identified with us in our sin so that we might identify with him and his sonship. So if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to come and to feast upon what Christ has done for you to be reassured of his love but also to say, God, what might you be leading me to? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave everything to redeem you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.